Yeah, that is some feel-good music right there, ladies and gentlemen. We are feeling good after the success of our last episode. This is episode number 26 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And if you guys haven't yet seen it or listened to it, why not? We had our first ever guest on the show last week, Tom Pappert, the founder and editor-in-chief of National File. Check him out. Check out his website, nationalfile.com. So for this episode, we're going to try to follow up on that, of course. It's pretty hard to follow up on a great guest like Tom. But what better way to do that than with a deep dive episode, a long-form take on one particular issue, one major historical event, or rather a historical trend that occurred over the course of several decades, a subject with which I am very familiar. Myself, of course, for those of you who don't know, I am originally from the state of California, the once great state, the once golden state. Now it's... I don't even know what you could possibly call it now. It is paradise lost, to say the least. That's one way to put it. We need to take a look at what happened to California, if for no other reason than to understand, A, how the rest of America could go the same way, and B, how the Democrats are planning to do this, how the left is actively pushing to make the rest of the state look like California. It is not pretty. People always talk about, oh, so goes California, so goes the nation. If that's true, then the whole country is kind of screwed because California is a lot of things. Yes, it is a hive of illegal immigration. It is a cesspool of homelessness and drug addiction and insane people roaming the streets when they should have been locked up a long time ago. Insanely high costs of living, insanely high taxes, property rates. The poverty line in San Francisco, by the way, for those of you who do not know, is $100,000. If you make less than $100,000 a year in San Francisco, you are considered poor. Good grief. If that terrifies you, then good. It should terrify you. I left California for a reason, and lots of people I know have left California for a reason, and we've got to do everything we can to make sure it does not happen anywhere else. It doesn't happen in Texas, certainly, but it doesn't happen anywhere else. So how can we do this? First and foremost, we need to understand what happened. To that great state. We need to understand what happened to California. And to this end, I actually wrote a book on this quite a while ago. It feels like a lifetime ago. A friend of mine, an old political mentor, if you will, recommended that I write this book. He came to me with the idea for the book and a bullet point list of the major things I could cover in this book and said, you know, Eric, I had this idea for a while. I could not possibly write a book, but I know you can. I like to think you're a good writer. Don't know what he was thinking when he said that, but whatever. <laughs> I went ahead and took the task almost like a great big homework assignment even though i was not in college anymore so that was the great thing there was no pressure there was no grade on the line and it took me i think maybe about a year a little over a year somewhere between a year and a year and a half give or take to write the book and i published it on amazon it's an ebook you can check it out for yourself it is your damned right with a comma after damned your damned right by eric lendrum and the, love the cover image. Shout out to the, the graphic artist who did this cover image for me. It's an image of both California and the Republican elephant breaking in half. Because that is what has happened to both the state and the state, the absolute state of the Republican Party. What little Republican Party is left. And just California. to kind of give people an idea who haven't been keeping up with California, how far gone it is. They do, don't they do, a, uh, they, they don't do the two parties running against one another and then go they do like first two past the post that running. is exactly correct that is one of only two states i think right now that does that the other being louisiana and that is one of the key elements in the downfall of california we will be talking about that but just to kind of give people an idea of how far gone it is a few years back they did that in the I believe that it was the senate race and it was two democrats who made it past the post the republican came in third he couldn't even, it's, couldn't it's even happened, compete. it's happened twice it happened in 2016 and in 2018 it's going to be the trend in both of those Senate races, and it's happened elsewhere. But yes, you are 100% correct. So we will come back to that. 
but first we must work back chronologically. We have to think big and think back. So where did this all start? 1994 was a great year for Republicans, as we all know. Newt Gingrich, with the famous Contract for America, led what was known as the Republican Revolution, a nationwide landslide that saw Republicans oust Democratic incumbents and take historically Democratic seats all over the country in the House of Representatives, in state legislatures, governorships, the Senate as well. And among other things, it was the first time, it marked the first time in half a century that Republicans took the majority of the United States House of Representatives. It happened halfway through the first term of President Bill Clinton, and it marked a whole new era in the significance of midterm elections, certainly, but a new era of revival for the Republican Party that was kind of left wondering what in the world to do with themselves after they had lost. They had three consecutive landslides in a row with Reagan and Bush Sr., and then Clinton came out on the scene and completely upended all that. So 1994 was a great year for Republicans. And in California, too, it was a pretty solid year. That year, Republican incumbent Governor Pete Wilson was up for re-election, and he was up against the name that is basically the royalty name in California. He was up against a member of the Brown family as the Democratic nominee, Kathleen Brown, the daughter of former Governor Pat Brown and the sister of former and future Governor Jerry Brown. Pete Wilson was not doing very well in the run-up to 1994. California was struggling economically in the aftermath of the early 90s recession, and the 1992 L.A. riots also did not reflect well on Governor Wilson because, of course, the federal authorities under then-President Bush Sr. had to come in and ultimately restore order. His approval ratings were about 50 percent, and again, he was up against California royalty. It's like running against a Roosevelt in New York or a Bush in Texas. So he needed something. He needed something big to really boost his agenda, to make himself more palatable for the voters of California. The method he used for this was to latch his entire re-election campaign onto a proposition. In California, you can have every election cycle, you can have a handful of propositions, you know, bills or proposed bills, proposed laws that go before the voters directly rather than being passed through the legislature and can be voted on popularly to be made into law. One of these in 1994 was Proposition 187, introduced by California Republican Assemblyman Richard Dick Mountjoy. It was introduced under the informal name of the Save Our State Initiative, SOS, very, very catchy, you know, using a distress signal because it would be much more foreshadowing than either Mount Joy or Wilson could have imagined. The proposal focused on illegal immigration and specifically on illegals profiting off of welfare and taxpayer funded benefits. It vowed to prevent illegals living in California from using public services such as public education and health care. And it also called for anyone suspected of being illegal immigrants who applied for such public services to be immediately reported to the authorities, with deportation almost guaranteed to follow. This is all covered in Chapter 2 of the book. So this was what Pete Wilson ultimately determined could help him. This, he figured, if nothing else, this would tackle both those issues, the economic troubles and the law and order concerns in the aftermath of the L.A. riots. In one fell swoop, this is both. This is alleviating the burden on taxpayers, and it's cracking down on lawlessness, the ultimate form of lawlessness in the United States, which is illegal immigration. So he tied himself completely to this proposition. And in 1994, Proposition 187 did pass with 59% of the popular vote. And in that same election, Governor Wilson was reelected with 55% of the vote to Kathleen Brown's 40%, a 15-point margin, a landslide by all measures. He only lost in the few Bay Area counties. So it worked at the time. It was successful. Unfortunately, Prop 187 was not going to last very long. It was sued almost immediately by left-wing activists arguing that illegals have rights, even though they don't. And it ultimately went before the United States District Court for the Central District of California. And the judge there, Mariana Falzer, 
ruled that it was unconstitutional in November of 1997. So naturally, the administration of Governor Wilson tried to appeal this particular ruling and try to take it all the way to the federal courts. They tried to take it up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which inevitably would have seen it go up to the Supreme Court, which very well could have ruled in favor of the law and codified it. Unfortunately, by that time, in the 1998 election, Wilson did not run for re-election, and the Republican nominee that year, Dan Lundgren, lost to Democrat Gray Davis by a whopping 20-point margin. So with a Democrat in office, it's kind of like with Joe Biden taking over after Donald Trump. He dropped a lot of the appeals that were ongoing under the previous administration. Davis did this with the Wilson administration's appeal on this particular law, and they ultimately let it die before it could even get to the Ninth Circuit. So that was it. That was the end of it. Prop 187 was dead and buried. So naturally, this worked very well for Democrats because they took note of the fact that this bill, Prop 187, did pass solidly with every single demographic in the state. White Californians voted in 66% in favor of it, and even Asians and African Americans more narrowly voted in favor of it. Both groups voted 52-48. There was only one demographic that voted against Prop 187 overwhelmingly, and it shouldn't take a rocket scientist to figure out which one it was. It was Latinos. Exactly. Only 27% of Latinos in the state of California voted in favor of it. The remaining 73%, that's three-fourths, voted against Prop 187. Democrats saw this and knew they could use this to their advantage if, and only if, Latinos, Hispanic Americans, whichever term you prefer, became a larger group in the state of California. And unfortunately, they already were doing that because eight years prior to the 1994 election with Wilson and Prop 187, then-President Ronald Reagan had infamously signed a bill into law that we all know as the Reagan Amnesty Plan, known as formerly as the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. It was passed on a bipartisan basis through Congress and signed into law on November 6, 1986. Among other major provisions, it granted amnesty to all illegal aliens who had come into the country prior to January 1st, 1982. This applied to roughly three or four million illegal immigrants in total in the entire country, most of them being located in California, especially as workers in the agricultural industry, working as farm workers. That's a big business, obviously, for illegal laborers in the state of California. Democrats saw this and knew that that was just the beginning. That was just the beginning of more and more illegals coming into the state of California, more Hispanics coming in and becoming a larger voting block. And they were and they did. This was the big problem ultimately with 187. It's a great it was a great law. It should, by all accounts, have stayed in effect. But the problem was that it didn't do enough. All it did was punish illegals who are living here already by preventing them from having access to public benefits, to welfare and whatnot, education, healthcare, all that stuff, which is good. We should do that. But they're still here. It doesn't take steps to remove them. It doesn't take steps to actually get rid of the problem. And if you just take away benefits for illegals without removing them, they're naturally, it's like kicking a hornet's nest without following through and killing all the hornets. They're going to be mad and they're going to do something about it. And especially when they get amnestied, they're going to translate that into political vengeance by voting for Democrats. Uh, let me ask about the election in 98. So the, you said that, uh, who was the, the great Davis, Gray Davis, you said was the Democrat who won that election? Yep. So he won by 20 percentage points, whereas Pete Wilson had won in a landslide just four years prior. What happened between those four years that caused the state to shift so radically to the left? Now, that is a very good question, because interestingly enough, Latinos did actually vote pretty solidly in those first few years after the amnesty plan. They voted solidly in favor of Republicans. In, in the 1986 gubernatorial election, Latinos voted for Republican Governor George Duke Majin 
46%, so a slight majority still voted for the Democrat, but it was a very close margin. If Republicans were able to get that kind of margin among Latinos today, we'd see a very different electoral map. And in the 1990 election, when Wilson was first elected, he got 47% of Latinos. So the problem is that Latinos never again voted for Republicans after that, primarily because of Prop 187. Again, every other ethnic group in the state voted overwhelmingly for Wilson and for Prop 187. From the 1990 election onward, every single gubernatorial election in the state of California, the Republican nominee would never get more than 30% of the Latino vote, including Wilson in 1994. So that's that's what happened. That's basically what happened. You know, the answer is right there in the pudding. Prop 187 was the catalyst for Latinos immediately turning on Republicans because Davis won in a landslide, yes, with overwhelming support from Latinos, but also from many other groups in addition, because I guess maybe this was 1998. So this was after the unsuccessful impeachment of Bill Clinton, which did lead to broader Democrat support in the country and including in the state of California. Yeah, I guess that well, that was kind of uh, that that might explain it, because I was looking at you mentioned in 94, only 27 percent of the well, wait, 90, 1990 was when they passed the proposition. Ninety four. Uh, it was 94 where they passed the proposition. So even in that election, Latinos overwhelmingly supported Wilson's opponent Kathleen in 94. Yep. And only four years later, then the table, you know, the table switches. It, I, it's not necessarily because Latinos jumped Democrat because they had already voted overwhelmingly Democrat in 94. So my question is more centered on what caused the the non-Latinos in California to obviously switch from Republican to Democrat between those four years from 94 to 98. And I think you kind of answered that probably with Bill Clinton's impeachment that kind of galvanized Democratic voters across the country and uh, galvanized people in um, in favor of the Democrats because Republicans pushed that impeachment. But um, yeah, it's I mean that that's one one example of elections having serious consequences when when you got a, a law like that on the line. If because if that had successfully been defended in court, if they'd gone to Supreme Court at the time, I have no doubt that the Supreme Court would have ruled in favor of that law being constitutional, and you would have had kind of what the libertarian effect. This is the argument that a lot of libertarians make about illegal immigration. They argue that just take away their benefits, make it so that no illegal alien can receive any benefits at all. They receive no education, they receive no health care. And then this country will not be a place that they want to live in if they're illegal. And so you, I think you would have seen that happen. A lot of those people would have self-deported if this law had gone into effect. But unfortunately, you know, the uh, 98, uh, the Democrats won. And of course, they were able to just by not defending the law in court, allow it to die. Exactly. So that was the very first major domino. There are other things that are covered that I cover in the book, but that was the first major one on a, on a macro scale in California. So then subsequently, we had... Very brief period where Democrats were in complete power once again in California. Davis was reelected in 2002 by a narrower margin, 47 to 42, against Republican Bill Simon. So a five-point margin, that's not a lot. Davis was not very popular either. There were some serious economic problems facing California at the time. And ultimately, this culminated in what we all know, the 2003 gubernatorial recall election in California. It was only the second successful gubernatorial recall in American history. The first had been in North Dakota in 1921. So this was a big deal. So Davis, his entire political legacy was put on the line with kind of like what is going on right now, the 2021 recall. With a recall election in California, it's one of a handful of states that allows gubernatorial recall. Some states don't do that. It's a one big ballot with two very simple questions. One, should the incumbent governor be recalled? Yes or no. And then the second ballot is the full list of candidates who seek to replace the governor in the event that the governor is successfully recalled. The governor obviously cannot run on that same list of candidates to recall him. So if a majority, an absolute majority, 50% plus one, vote in favor of yes to recall, the governor is recalled immediately, and the winner of the second ballot, whoever wins a plurality, 
of the second ballot is elected governor and sworn in shortly thereafter. So the 2003 recall, in a lot of ways, 2003 California gubernatorial recall election was kind of the first meme election, you know, 13 years before Donald Trump in 2016. It was a total joke. It's in California. It's where Hollywood is. You're going to see celebrities run as a complete joke in this election. <laughs> and there were a handful of celebrities. There was the singer Rania Tamar Goldberg, known more famously by her stage name Angeline, who is running again in this election. Former adult film actress Mary Carey, course, who, was, course. who was also running in this election. Larry Flint, who was the... Uh, editor of Hustler magazine and other <clears throat> adult magazines and publications who has since passed away. He passed away actually earlier this year. He ran in that election. Uh, Gary Coleman, the former uh, child actor and comedian, ran in that election, as well as Ariana Huffington, the founder of Huffington Post. So lots of celebrities ran. It was a total, it was a complete joke of an election and the highest billed comedian of this circus, actor and bodybuilder, the Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger. So you had all these candidates and a handful of them. Some ran as Republicans, some ran as Democrats, some ran as independents. Schwarzenegger ran as a Republican. The top Democratic candidate, once it became, it became fairly obvious early on that Davis was going to get recalled. So they did actually put effort behind a serious Democrat. That was the Democratic lieutenant governor at the time under Davis, Cruz Bustamante. And the Republican Party, to their credit, did also put forward a serious candidate of their own. At the time, he was just a state assemblyman. He has since gone on to be elected to Congress. Tom McClintock, who is still in Congress to this day, is one of the handful of Republicans. And he is actually a pretty solid guy. He's a straightforward conservative, not like a raging populist or anything, but he is certainly a, he would have made a fine governor. He was the serious Republican candidate. In the end, the voters of California did overwhelmingly vote to recall Ray Davis, 55% to 44%. Again, the, most of the Bay Area counties were the ones that voted against it as well as Los Angeles County by a narrow margin. But then the rest of the state ultimately voted in favor of recalling him. Subsequently, this is an interesting thing. Even people who vote against the recall can still cast a vote on the second ballot. So this is what a lot of people try to do with those who opposed the recall, but still ultimately either voted for the Democrat, Bustamante, or a lot who jokingly voted for Schwarzenegger. Again, as a joke, mm. Los Angeles County, which voted against the recall, voted in favor of Schwarzenegger. <laughs> So they, because they didn't think he would win, they didn't think he would get it. But guess what? He did. He ran as a meme and ended up getting actually getting elected. Actually, exactly. Nobody thought he would win. He didn't think he would win, and he got elected. Forty-eight percent of the vote to Bustamante's thirty-one percent and Tom McClintock's thirteen percent. So you add those two between Schwarzenegger and McClintock, that is sixty-one percent of the vote right there. That's not even counting the handful of other slightly more fringe candidates. So a Republican was gonna win this election no matter what, apparently. So if it had been just McClintock, we could have seen a serious Republican governor and maybe things could have been better for California. But unfortunately, things would not go so well with Schwarzenegger as governor. He would go on to get reelected in 2006 by a landslide, 56% to the Democratic opponents, 39%. He would win, again, every county except for a handful in the Bay Area and Los Angeles County. But Schwarzenegger was always a very moderate Republican. He, he's, that's, that's being generous, honestly. He was more so... He was in a lot of ways, closer to being a Democrat than being a Republican. One of the, there's two major ways in which he really did kind of put the nails in the coffin for the California Republican Party. One of them is Proposition 8. So in the year 2008, this is as Schwarzenegger is finishing his second term, there was a proposition put on the ballot by conservative activists seeking to ban gay marriage in the state of California. Now, of course, you may think that that's political suicide. It's California. It's the home of modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah, San Francisco. There's no way that would pass. 
against all odds. And in the same election year that Barack Obama was elected president and crushed John McCain in the state, Proposition 8, miraculously, despite all the opposition from Hollywood and from big tech and the NAACP, and being outspent by about $5 million by the no on 8 campaign, Proposition 8 ultimately was passed in the state of California by a margin of 52% to 48%. Yeah, I remember that. And this was a big deal. So miraculously, even counties like Sacramento County and Los Angeles County, which went for Obama, 58% and 69% respectively, still ultimately passed Proposition 8 by much slimmer margins. What's even more fascinating is that this was even more unanimous among all ethnic groups than Prop 187 was. It was passed with overwhelming support by minority groups. 70% of African Americans in California voted for Prop 8, as did 53% of Latinos. Yeah, it was actually black Americans who killed the petition, well, the ballot measure in Maryland to legalize same-sex marriage. This was about the same time, like 2010, 2011, and Maryland overwhelmingly rejected it thanks to the votes of black Americans. Exactly. And this was such a shining moment for conservatism in what was obviously a very bleak election. Democrats still made gains. Obama had just been elected in what was at the time the biggest, the largest popular vote total for any presidential candidate in American history. And it led to Bill O'Reilly commenting on his Fox News show, The O'Reilly Factor, in his Talking Points memo segment, which is his opening monologue. He commented that this right here, Prop 8 passing in California in the same year as the Democratic presidential election landslide, was proof that America was still a center-right nation. And it was. At the time, it very much was still a center-right nation. Well, because even Barack Obama himself had to run as someone who supported traditional marriage. He and Clinton both, uh, they supported civil unions, but they were very firm in their support for traditional marriage. They did not support same-sex marriage at the time. Exactly. And this was proof. This was a good strategy. This was a game plan for conservatives who wanted to push other social agendas. It had a great grassroots organizing. It had a fantastic ground game. It knew how to get support among even minorities by appealing to a lot of their religious tendencies. It was a social, cultural issue. Unfortunately, at the top of the California Republican Party food chain, they wanted nothing to do with it. Schwarzenegger was against Proposition 8. So when left-wing activists ultimately sued to have Prop 8 ruled unconstitutional, it was taken through the various courts. And again, could have worked its way up to the Supreme Court with a ruling that could have, of course, preceded what did legalize gay marriage in 2013, Obergefell versus Hodges. But unlike Wilson trying to defend Prop 187 in the 90s, Schwarzenegger did not support it. He did not lend any of his administration's resources, legal or otherwise, to defending Prop 8 in court. So it was entirely on the organizers of the campaign themselves to fight in court for this. So that made it already even harder than it needed to be. So it already was essentially dead in the water without Schwarzenegger's help and without the help of the Republican Party at large in the state legislature. And all pretenses were dropped when former governor and future governor Jerry Brown, the brother of Kathleen Brown and son of Pat Brown, took office once again after the 2010 gubernatorial election. And it was just over at that point. It didn't even get to the Ninth Circuit Court, just like Prop 187. So ultimately, Schwarzenegger could have taken a stand and really fought for it like Pete Wilson did and been the proper. He should have been the standard bearer for the Republican Party and the grassroots base, which clearly wanted this thing. And he didn't want anything to do with it. Did Schwarzenegger, whenever he came into office, did he do anything with Prop 187 or was that considered uh, ancient history and dead in the water? That was ancient history. That was ancient history. And there was no effort to 
to bring it back to 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 limit resources going to illegal aliens after that was killed in the courts? Nope. He want there was nothing. He no efforts on that whatsoever. That was long gone. That was like you said. That was ancient history by the time Schwarzenegger came along. Well, I think this speaks to a broader problem uh, in the Republican Party because the thing is, California didn't have to go the way it went. It could have it could have been stopped if the Republican Party had continued to hammer Prop 187 the way Pete Wilson did. If they had continued to push for this even after it was defeated in the courts, if they had made that a serious plank in their party's platform to the point to where Schwarzenegger would have either been pressured to support it, to, to challenge it, to, to push for it to be brought, over, brought before the Supreme Court or face a primary challenger. But the problem is the head of the Republican Party, the people who run the party, do not match the voters. They don't match the rank and file. I was speaking to someone who works for Virginia Republican gubernatorial candidate Glenn Youngkin's campaign yesterday. And he said that they sat down – this is actually a very strong white pill. They sat down with some Muslim leaders in Virginia, and they were discussing social issues. And they were they saw that there is an opening in Virginia for Republicans to make inroads if they focus on social issues because Muslims aren't for all this stuff. They don't support the LGBTQIAZ agenda. They support traditional values, and they're very disappointed with the direction the Democratic Party is going. And this is one thing that, you know, yeah, a lot of Latinos could have been brought back into the fold in California if they had pushed for Prop 187 and pushed very strongly for keeping same-sex marriage illegal in California as part of the same package. Because a lot of a lot of those Latinos who ended up jumping over to the Democratic side because of Prop 187, many of them were socially conservative. And you're not going to get those voters back by just focusing on fiscal conservatism. It's just it's just reality. Most of them are not fiscally conservative. No, definitely not. That's that's not at the forefront of most Republican voters minds uh, when cultural issues are so much more important. And this led to another huge problem that I think the second big death knell for the Republican Party under Schwarzenegger. Proposition 14. What is Proposition 14? In 2009, a Republican state senator by the name of Abel Maldonado, wrote a bill enabling the state legislature to put Proposition 14 on the ballot for the voters to choose. Proposition 14 proposed that the usual primary system in California, which is how it's done everywhere usually. We all know how primaries work, right? You have sometimes on the same date, sometimes not. The Republic, Republican voters come out and a handful of Republican candidates run for an office for senator, governor, what have you, and they vote wise, statewide or district-wide, whatever, vote for that candidate to be their nominee on the ballot. The Democrats do the same thing, and third parties like the Libertarians and the Greens do that as well. Prop 14 proposed to chuck all of that out the window in favor of the jungle primary, also known as the top two primary, where everybody runs in one primary, regardless of party, Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, Green, Independence Party, what have you. And the top two candidates go on to the general election, irrespective of party affiliation. The story behind the passage of this is astounding in and of itself and shows just how deep the corruption runs in California, especially in the Republican Party. Maldonado really wanted this passed. He was an idealistic young man who thought he had a future as the future of the Republican Party in California. And he had to strike a deal with the Democratic majority to ensure that it would be passed so the public could vote on it. So he ultimately agreed, along with five other Republican members of the legislature, to defect from the California GOP and vote in favor of Schwarzenegger's budget for fiscal year 2009-2010, which was very controversial among Republican voters and the majority of Republicans in office. They actually rebelled against Schwarzenegger for this. But six of those Republicans 
ultimately voted in favor with the Democrats in favor of this controversial budget, which led to them being known as the Sacramento Six because they voted in favor of a budget that promised to increase taxes on several different occasions, which violated their promise, you know, kind of like Bush Sr., no new taxes. In return for Maldonado defecting to the Democrats on this vote, the Democrats agreed to pass Prop 14 through the legislature so it could be put up to the public vote, and they did just that. Less than a year later, as a reward for not only passing the budget, but also the success of Prop 14, Schwarzenegger would appoint Maldonado as his lieutenant governor for the remainder of his term. So you see just how dirty and how shady these politics are. And sure enough, Prop 14, in the primary election of June 8, 2010, because the, the propositions are usually put up for a vote in the prime on the primary date, not even the general election date, just to get that out of the way so they can focus solely on the electoral races, 54% of the public voted in favor of Prop 14. So the deal was sealed. From that moment on, after the 2000, 2010 election was the last normal one, as it were, every election from that point on, from 2012 onward, would be under this new top two jungle primary system. And that has led to what we hinted at earlier, that they feared and Republicans did fear, among other things, first off, this kills third parties, which say what you want about third parties, but it's clearly not as good of a representative democracy or a Republican system if there are no third parties, if it's literally just the two parties, that really kind of kills it even more. You would never have successful third party candidates like Jesse Ventura in Minnesota under this kind of system. But ultimately, this doomed Republicans. And Republicans sounded the alarm bell on this right away. They saw what was coming. But Schwarzenegger and Maldonado and others said, oh, no, no, this is all about giving power back to the people. This is letting the people decide, which is just a absolutely brain-dead take. But this did lead to, among other things, 2016 was the first one. The U.S. Senate election in 2016, which infamously led to the rise of a certain someone, a certain prosecutor from San Francisco named Kamala Harris, who was elected that year. And in that election, there were three major, and I'm using that word very lightly, major, quote-unquote, Republican candidates against just two major Democrats. And that was Kamala Harris and Congresswoman Loretta Sanchez from Orange County, who was a member of the Blue Dog Coalition. She was admittedly a bit more of a moderate. All the Republicans combined, that's counting all the other kind of loser Republicans who were like, you know, minor candidates. They were running as kind of a not really serious candidates. All the Republicans combined in the primary election got only 27.9% of the vote. The highest finishing Republican, who came in third in the overall primary, George Duff Sunheim, former chairman of the California Republican Party, got just 7.8% of the vote. Kamala Harris, of course, came in first in the primary, 37.9%, and Loretta Sanchez got 17.9%. In the subsequent general, of course, Kamala Harris got elected with 62% of the vote to Sanchez's 38%. This would eventually be repeated in the 2018 Senate election, just two years later, where, of course, Dianne Feinstein was up for re-election, and one Democrat did run against her, Assemblyman Kevin DeLeon, who basically ran as an outright socialist, so he ran, obviously, as a much more left-wing candidate, and there were a handful of Republicans who ran in this election. Not a single one of them was a major candidate. There was no former chair of the Republican Party, not a single serious candidate ran it was all a bunch of no names you even had a literal neo-nazi and holocaust denier named patrick little who ran in the election all the republicans combined ultimately got 31.2 percent of the vote the highest finishing republican a businessman and out and proud trump supporter interestingly enough like a hardcore maga candidate james p bradley got 8.3 percent of the vote feinstein got 44 percent to de leon's 12 percent interestingly enough this was funny 
in the general election, Feinstein actually had the closest re-election of her entire career since the 1994 election. She got only 54% of the vote to De Leon's 46%, so slightly above an eight-point margin. And every single traditionally Republican county in the state, you know, the inland counties, the rural counties, including my home county, mm-hmm. voted overwhelmingly for De Leon by roughly the same margins that they would vote for a Republican candidate. De Leon got these Republican counties like 70, 80 percent in some counties, even though he's an outright crazy actual socialist. What I, was the purpose for that? I will tell you because I was part of this phenomenon. I was still living in California in 2018 and I voted for De Leon in the general. I voted for Bradley. I actually did. I It was kind of a lottery guessing, casting our vote for these noting Republicans, guessing which one was going to be the top finisher. And I voted for Bradley and he did end up being the finishing Republican in the general election. I voted for De Leon. One word. Kavanaugh. In that year, Feinstein had been the tip of the spear in first revealing the allegations, the baseless allegations against then Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. She was the face of that. She was the start of that. And I knew, and I said this to my friends, I had friends in the Republican Party in my local area who were baffled when I said I was going to vote for De Leon. They're like, yeah, I, I don't like Feinstein, but she's a moderate. And I'm like, you crazy? I'm voting for De Leon because F, Diane Feinstein, I said that very bluntly to my friends, for what she did to Kavanaugh. She started this. She brought this on that man. And he ultimately was confirmed, as we know. But it was still putting this man and his family through living hell and creating the one of the most stressful periods, I think, for conservative activists to watch one of our guys for the Supreme Court get just beaten down. And again, thanks to President Trump for standing by him. He ultimately got confirmed. But Feinstein started that. And I said, it is a matter of principle. Nothing else matters. The entire midterm elections were basically made about the Kavanaugh confirmation. So I voted for De Leon, and most Republicans did as well. It was purely an anti-Feinstein vote, which means if a Republican had managed to get on the ballot, maybe they could have done a little better. They probably wouldn't have won. But off of that furious anti-Feinstein sentiment, as well as dissatisfaction from her left, the Republican could have probably done a little bit better in that year. Well, I guess this, that would be my question is you're you're drawing this proposition into the other two propositions as an example of why the Republican Party is facing or has faced already its downfall. But the thing is, if you if it wasn't first to pass the post— would Republicans, I mean, whenever they're getting 31 percent in the jungle primary, even if it was you know, Republican and Democrat who made it to the finalists, would they really get more than 35 percent, 40 percent at most in the, any general election? Pro- probably not. No, you're definitely correct. Republicans still would have an uphill battle to climb. But it's just it's a matter of demoralization. You know, when Republicans don't even have a dog in the race, they don't even have a candidate on the ballot and Republican voters in rural counties and farmlands who love Trump and can't stand San Francisco, Los Angeles nonsense, have no choice but to vote between two Democrats. It's demoralizing. They're not going to donate to the Republican Party. They're not going to go support their local central committees. They're not going to do anything. It just creates more and more of a disconnect between Republicans yeah, I guess- and I guess it would hurt the down-ballot candidates as well because a lot of these voters just won't show up. They won't even bother. If they don't have somebody at the top of the ticket, they're just not even going to bother showing up to uh, to vote, especially like in a non-presidential year. Then they wouldn't have any reason to vote. But in the I, swing seats, exactly. Yeah, that mm-hmm. could be huge. I guess the, the, the major moral of the story is uh, really is demographics because this all started because Democrats saw that they, could, they had an opening by using one demographic against the majority demographic. If they could drive that ethnic, that ethnic wedge issue, they could eventually win in the end, which it's really it really does speak to their view of America, that they're willing to use a foreign demographic as a cudgel against the majority demographic just for political points, when obviously they're rank-and-file Democratic voters. Like you mentioned how popular Prop 187 was whenever it passed. A lot of Democrats supported that. This was This was kind of a bipartisan issue. And a lot of those Democrats then ended up voting for Pete Wilson because he was supporting that proposition. 
And it really, you know, a lot you hear a lot of Republicans talk about how illegal immigration isn't just an, it's an issue with Latino voters, that Latinos are among some of the fiercest opponents of illegal immigration. So to those people, I would just point them to Proposition 187 and ask why. If it's if, you know, if stopping illegal immigration is just as big of an issue with Latino voters as it is with every other set of voters, then why did Latino voters overwhelmingly oppose Prop 187 in California? That is a very good question. And it's pretty obvious because this is something uh, someone once told me this a long time ago. I asked them to compare and contrast how in Texas, certainly, as we saw in the 2020 presidential election, Texas Hispanics overwhelmingly went for Trump by historic margins. They swung by double digits in some of the border counties. And whereas, of course, in California, the support for Biden was higher than ever before. And I asked him, I said, why is it that, you know, you have Hispanics in Texas who are more Republican and patriotic and support strict immigration versus Hispanics in California who are the opposite? And he said, well, in Texas, a lot of those Hispanics, even in the border counties, they have been there for generations. Their families have been in Texas for generations. Some of them have ancestors who fought in the Alamo. You know, some of them have ancestors who were there when Texas was an independent country. You know, they, their identities are ingrained in Texas and subsequently are ingrained in America. They see themselves as Americans. They may have brown skin. They may speak Spanish, but they still see themselves as Americans. Whereas in California, still to this day, a lot of Hispanics, especially with the Biden administration letting the borders floodgates completely open, a lot of them are first or second generation illegal aliens who are still loyal to the countries they came from, the identities they had before, and they are coming to a democratic government in the state that will give them free stuff and say, oh yeah, you don't need to assimilate, you don't need to learn to speak English, you don't need to you know, cite the Pledge of Allegiance, you don't need to do any of these things, just keep doing what you're doing and you can have all these free benefits and just remember to vote for us, by the way. And that's the difference. I would add two more reasons to that now that I think about it. One is the social conservatism of the Texas Republican Party versus the social conservatism of the California Republican Party. Which is non-existent. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, A lot of those Latino, a lot of those Mexican-American voters who vote Republican sometimes and sometimes all the time, they are socially conservative and they feel like they have a home in the Republican Party, even if they don't agree with the American nationalism of the Republican Party, they still vote Republican because they want abortion made illegal in most circumstances. They don't support same-sex marriage, whereas in California, the California Latinos who don't support American nationalism but are socially conservative, they don't have a home in the Republican Party for anything. There's no issue that the Republican Party supports that they can say, well, okay, I don't agree with your American nationalism, I don't agree with your restricting of, of illegal immigration, but abortion trumps that or same-sex marriage trumps that, so I'm going to vote for you. When the Republican Party's position on those issues is really no different than the Democratic Party's, they don't have any reason to vote Republican, so they're just going to hold their nose and vote for Democrats. Right, because after the failure of when Gray Davis was elected in 1998, after backlash from Prop 187 and that campaign to save Prop 187 ultimately failed, Republicans in California mistakenly, this is what led to Schwarzenegger, they mistakenly believe, oh, hey, clearly we made a mistake, we're sorry, we need to start appealing to Hispanics, we need to start appealing to illegals, we need to be more like the Democrats, and then they'll vote for us. But the problem is, what, yeah, like you said, when they are just Democrat light, most voters who would vote for Democrats anyway will take one look at them and say, why vote for you and we can just vote for the real thing? Mm-hmm. And that's why the party is where it is right now. It is now in California. There are more voters registered independent than there are registered members of the Republican Party in California. Yeah, that makes sense. But the second issue that I would add to that, why uh, why they overwhelmingly, because even if you look at the exit polls like in 2020, it's not much different from the Latino vote in California for Democrats and the, and the black vote nationally for Democrats. You don't see anywhere in the country where it's like we have an 80-20 lopsided vote for Democrats among Latinos like you do in California. Typically, it's 60-40. It might be 65-35. Like Virginia, it was 64-36. 
you don't see, you know, 82-18 like you do in California with 82% going for Democrats, only 18% of Latinos going for Republicans. And I would add, besides the social conservatism issue, I would also add it's the universities in California, which are far more left-wing than most universities around the nation. And when the children of immigrants go to these California universities, not only are they indoctrinated in social liberalism, but they're indoctrinated in anti-Americanism. So if your parents were Mexican immigrants, they might be socially conservative. They might love the United States. You go to a California university and you're taught that your ancestors and your people are the rightful owners of California. They, they're introduced to Chicano studies. They're introduced to the, you know, the, the indoctrination that because Spanish-speaking people were in California before English-speaking people, therefore Mexicans have a birthright to California and the Southwest, much like AOC believes about all Latinos and you know their birthright to America because they had some native ancestry. So I, I would add that as another reason, whereas you probably don't see that as strongly in places like Texas and Florida, where there's a high Latino population that t- tends to vote more as independents. And this is something that that you saw a lot of headlines in the 2020 election was that Democrats have a Latino problem, you know, because they were pointing out that because a lot of these a lot of these journalists, they come from California or they've been indoctrinated into the same the same ideology. And they just assume that. Latinos are going to vote 80 percent for Democrats, 85 percent for Democrats, especially with the way that Trump had talked about Mexicans. But then they look at the results and they're like, no, actually, Latinos are voting more like independents. They're voting like 55, 45 or 60, 40. And I I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that there is a huge difference between Latinos in California and Latinos in the rest of the country. Exactly. And if we don't do something fast to fight this indoctrination, as well as fight illegal immigration to try to stem the tide and try to deport them and send them back, because that's the only way to make sure that they don't just keep coming back and trying to become the next big voting bloc for Democrats, because that is their end goal. If we don't try to follow up on what President Trump tried to do, then yes, Texas will eventually go the way of California. And that right there eliminates the electoral path for Republicans. Trump could literally come back in 24 and win Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Iowa, Florida, North Carolina, even take back Arizona and Georgia. If he loses Texas, especially now that they're gaining two more electoral votes at the census, it's over already. It's a very narrow loss in the Electoral College. So we have to do everything we can to make sure the cancer that started in California does not spread to the rest of the country. Certainly with, you know, a top two primary spreading elsewhere or anything else along those lines. But until then, we are going to continue fighting and continue giving you guys the facts that you need to know as to how this got started. Because to understand a problem, you have to understand how it started. And you need to know the problem and the enemy that is causing the problem. That's what we are seeking. We're seeking to do both here. That is all the time we have left for this special episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And stay tuned because we are going to have more guests in the very near future. Just like our guest Tom Pappard in the last episode. Again, check that one out. And stay tuned for future guests and more special content from The Right Take. Be sure to follow us on all of our social media wherever you can, whichever platforms you are on. You can find the full list at our website, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. We are on Gab, Minds, Facebook, Telegram, YouTube, BitChute, and Rumble. Our podcast is available on iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, and Spotify, among others. So until then, we'll talk to you next week, guys.